there's a number of popular Bible sayings that aren't in the Bible at all. For example, the one that mothers love to tell their children, cleanliness is next to godliness. Not in the Bible. Or, once saved, always saved. Well, the idea might be true and taught in Scripture that, that when we are drawn to Christ through genuine saving faith, we are in His hand and none can pluck us out of His hand. That saying is not in the Bible. Or, God works in mysterious ways. Certainly true, but not in the Bible. Or, this too shall pass. Maybe true, depending on what the thing is, but not in the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. That one's really not in the Bible and really not even true. Scripture actually says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Quite different than money being the root of all evil. Or one that we might even say a fair amount around here, God won't ever give you more than you can handle. Now, it's certainly true that God will supply you with the grace that you need to handle whatever it is you have, but it's going to be more than you can handle on your own. Another popular Bible saying that's actually not in the Bible is, love the sinner, hate the sin. I'm not mistaken, it was Gandhi who actually popularized that saying. There might be some truth there, but it's not in the Bible. Or, to thine own self be true. Sounds very KJV-ish, but it was Shakespeare, not the King James Version that said, to thine own self be true. Perhaps the most dangerous and one of the most popular Bible quotes that isn't really in the Bible is this. God helps those who what? Help themselves. I say it's perhaps one of the most dangerous because if you look at the pages of Scripture, if you look at the life of Jesus, you will find that Jesus helps those who can't help themselves. Why don't you turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 7, Verse 28. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. We have been walking through for the number of months the Sermon on the Mount, this incredible sermon that Jesus preached, Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, where we really get a glimpse of his incredible theology, what Jesus believed and, and what he knew to be true. And at the conclusion of that sermon, Matthew kind of summarizes something for us about Jesus. Look with me in verse 28, Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew ends this sermon by teaching us a lesson that we need to learn about Jesus. Jesus is not just some itinerant teacher. He is, in fact, the king of kings. And Matthew looks at Jesus' teaching, and he says, he teaches differently. 
And then in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew shows us not merely from Jesus' words, but from Jesus' works. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus wants to show us glimpses of Jesus' glory, and he wants you to see him and see his power and see his glory and say, I want that. In chapters 8 and 9, we're introduced, we'll be in these chapters for the next few weeks or so, we're introduced to three sets of miracle stories And in these stories, Jesus reveals his power over disease, over nature, over demons, over even death itself. And this morning, as we examine the the first set of three miracle stories, we're going to learn a simple counterintuitive truth that Jesus helps those who can't help themselves. Perhaps you're in this room this morning. And you feel like you can't come to Jesus. If God only helps those who help themselves, then you're out of luck. You've messed up your life far too miserably to come to Jesus now. I pray that this text reminds you that if all you have is mess, that's all that Jesus requires. If all you can cling to is your helplessness, that's all you need to come to Jesus. There are others in this room, perhaps, your followers of Jesus, and yet where you struggle is showing this type of love to other people. And so if if God only helps those who help themselves, then they're out of luck. If the sinner has made his bed, let him lie in it. I pray that this passage will remind you, Christian, that if Jesus helps those who can't help themselves, then you and I should too. Three examples in our text in Matthew chapter 8 of the simple truth that Jesus helps those who can't help themselves. Example number one, no one is too dirty for Jesus to touch. No one is too dirty for Jesus to touch. Look with me at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him. Now, little kids, those of you that can't read, this is not a leopard, you know, spotted animal coming up to Jesus. It's a leper. You know what a leper is? A leper is a person who has leprosy. It's a a generic term in the Bible for various skin diseases that affected the body. But in its most severe cases, leprosy would not only destroy the skin, it could cause fingers and toes, hands or feet, or even parts of the face to literally rot off the body. Leprosy in its extreme form was impossible to cure. And even if there was some way for an individual to be healed from leprosy, they would often be scarred for life. You know, fingers missing or toes missing or other limbs missing or the face completely disfigured by this disease. 
For this reason, leprosy was considered the most feared disease of the ancient world. It's like the Black Death, or dare I say, COVID-19, but a lot worse. The, The physical effects of leprosy were bad, but the social effects were much worse. Because leprosy was extremely contagious, if you had leprosy, if you were a leper, you were cut off from the community. You were extremely isolated. Uh, Listen to this passage in Leviticus chapter 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. I don't know about you, but I'm having flashbacks to 2020. Like long hair, right? Couldn't go to the hair, you know, go to the barber, get your hair cut, and wear it covering your upper lip. He's got a face mask on, and he's socially distancing from everybody. But what's this about crying out unclean? Why does he do that? When the Old Testament talks about a person being unclean, it's not referring to physical dirtiness. It's referring to being ritually unclean. If you were unclean, biblically, you were not allowed to go to the synagogue. You were not allowed to go to the temple. You were not allowed to to enter into close community with the people of God. If you were ritually unclean and you got near a clean person, guess what happens? They become unclean. And so, to let everybody know that you're unclean, if you neared other people with leprosy, you would shout out, unclean. Jewish tradition forbade a Jew from coming closer than six feet to a leper. See, they were doing social distancing far before it was cool or mainstream. Some said that when the wind was blowing, the limit was 150 feet away from a leper. You don't want to get close. One ancient rabbi said, when I see lepers, I throw stones at them, lest they come near me. Another said, I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on a street where a leper had walked. Get the picture? What it's like to be a leper in Jesus' day, socially outcast, spiritually unclean, cut off from people that you love. The disease is ravaging your body. You're wearing signs of the disease and your torn up clothes and your long hair, something covering your upper lip. This is an outcast, a dirty person, an unclean person. With all that as background, let's go back to verse 2. Behold, a leper came to Jesus and knelt before him. Now, what do you think happened in that moment? Can you imagine Jesus walking down the mountain with his disciples, a huge crowd of people nearby, and all of a sudden, a leper, obvious leper, torn clothes, long hair, maybe covering his upper lip, and he runs, perhaps, To Jesus. What do the people around Jesus do, do you think? Scream and gasp and and, and shudder in horror. How dare this leper get near to Jesus? And look at what he says. 
Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Simple faith. Jesus, you have the power to heal me. Do you want to? Now, if you think people were gasping as the leper approaches Jesus and kneels at his feet, what do you think they're going to do when Jesus does what he does next? Look at the text. Verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, now, if you know anything about the miracles of Jesus, you know he can heal with a word. He doesn't have to touch this leper. He doesn't have to bend down, stretch out his hand, and touch someone that's unclean. Why does he do it? Leviticus chapter 5 verse 3 makes it clear that if you touch an unclean person, you become unclean. Unless you're Jesus. When Jesus touches an unclean person, the unclean person becomes clean. Isn't that incredible? You say, brother, sister, friend, you might say, uh, you don't understand, pastor, what I've done. You don't understand my past. You don't know how dirty I am. Guess what? When Jesus reaches out and touches you, he doesn't become dirty. You become clean. That's our Jesus. Unbeliever, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe your parents brought you here this morning, maybe a friend invited you, you don't believe in Jesus. You're not a follower of him. Listen to me. Please listen to me. No matter how dirty you are, you aren't too dirty for Jesus to touch you. No matter how unclean you feel, friend, you are not too far gone for Jesus to touch you. The, the gospel, the good news that Christians believe, the, the good news on which we stand, by which we are saved, is not, hear me, Christian, it's not about cleaning yourself up so you can follow Jesus. It's about coming to Jesus with all of your mess and all of your filth and saying, I am a sinner and I can't fix this. I can't do this on my own. I can't obey you, God. I deserve your wrath because I have disobeyed you. Will you forgive me? I, I know my sin, and I know what you did in my place. Jesus lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death and rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him comes to him like this leper and says, will you clean me? Jesus reaches out and saves all those who come down with repentance and faith. The question for you, friend, have you done that? But, you know, this story isn't just for unbelievers. It's for Christians, too. I think I'm afraid sometimes, if you're honest, Christian, 
you feel like Jesus could handle your sin before you became a Christian, but he can't handle it anymore. Let, let, let me say, with, say to you clearly, brother, sister, if Jesus didn't flinch at your filth when you were an enemy of God, why would he now that you are his friend? About a month ago, we were eating lunch with our friends at 185 here in town, and the adults were sitting at one table, and the kids were sitting at another table, and the adults were talking after lunch and just kind of hanging out, fellowshipping with some folks, and my youngest daughter, Eleanor, uh, walks up to the table. She gets, out, gets down from her chair, walks up to my table with a napkin in her hand, and she puts it right in front of me. And I was like, Ella, what are you doing? Why are you giving me your trash? And she said, I don't want it anymore. She turned around and walked back to her seat. That was it. Okay. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this, right? That's what kids do. Why? Because they, they, they have this boldness that, that dad will take care of it. Mom will take care of it, right? You know, the reason why our kids probably leave their junk all over the house is because we end up picking it up half the time, right? They're going to take care of it. Now, kids, don't do that. I see the smiles over there. <laughs> but listen to me, Christian. If you have been adopted into the family of God, God is not afraid of your filth, even as a Christian. Scripture says he is not, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. That's amazing. I remember various times in my life where my brothers or sisters did something stupid and I felt kind of ashamed to be their brother. I know none of you have ever experienced anything like that. That's okay. Jesus, who is infinitely holy, is not ashamed, Christian, to call you, even on your worst day, brother, sister. Why? Because no one is too dirty for Jesus to touch. Christian, this might have been the worst weekend of your life as a Christ follower. You can still come to Jesus today for forgiveness, for cleansing. You can bring your trash to Jesus. You don't have to clean it up first. You don't have to put a bow on it. You bring it to him and you confess. And the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. That's our Jesus. Now look with me at verse 4. Jesus says to this leper, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. It's, it's as if Jesus is saying, don't, don't stop, don't pass go, go immediately to the priest and be cleansed. Offer the sacrifices required in Leviticus 14 for a leper so that he can be brought back into the community. Listen, when Jesus heals someone, he doesn't heal them halfway. That's incredibly good news. Jesus doesn't merely want to restore this leper's body. He wants to restore him to his community, to his people. He wants him to be able to be back into the family. And that's what Jesus does for you, Christian, when you trust in him. A Christian, in your case, 
this means that Jesus wants to do more than clean you up so that you can be in a right relationship with God. He also wants to clean you up so that you can show God's love to others. If you've been loved like this, you should love like this. That's the application. If Jesus loved you when you were dirty and unclean, then you should love the dirty and unclean too. Let me give you one example of how we might think about doing this. It's June 26th, which means we only have four months left until Pride Month is over. Now, Christian, perhaps like me, you have felt assaulted by all of the reminders and the celebrations of the world's sin over the past few weeks in what our culture calls Pride Month. We as Christians need to think clearly and carefully about what it means to love those in this community that are unclean in their sin without affirming their sin. I could be wrong, but I believe if the Lord tarries, there's going to come a time where many of our friends and neighbors caught up in this movement are going to be disillusioned by the lies that they've been told about what this is going to bring them. It's not going to bring them satisfaction. It's not going to bring them lasting affirmation. It's not going to bring them peace and joy. It's going to leave them desperate and alone and broken and cut off from God. Where will the church be when that day comes? If we join the world in affirming their sin, they won't come to us because we'll have nothing unique to offer. If we go to the other extreme and we hate them and scorn them, they won't come either because that we've burned the only bridge by which they can come back to us. So Christian, we must learn how to love the unclean and the dirty like Jesus did, not affirming sin but loving sinners, even those cut off from God. If we've been loved like this, we must love like this. Jesus helps those who can't help themselves. Even if you're unclean, you're not too dirty to come to Jesus. Second example in our text, no one is too distant for Jesus to reach. No one is too distant for Jesus to reach. Look with me at verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, Capernaum was a little fishing village on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This town was the hometown of, of Peter and Andrew and Matthew, beautiful little area there near the Sea of Galilee. Now, you remember, just a little historical context, this part of the world was controlled by Rome in that day. Rome was in control of all the, the territory we now call Israel, would have been called the kingdom of Israel in those days or prior to Roman occupation. 
And one of the leaders in the Roman Empire was a centurion. A centurion would be a captain of about 100 men. Most likely, although we don't know for sure, this centurion could have been uh, in, in charge of law and order in the town of Capernaum. Perhaps he's like the, the city's sheriff, okay? But, but don't think of these Roman officers like you think of law and officers in your town. Our police officers come from among us. Some of them worship with us. Some of them live in our communities. They're a part of us. Today, most of us, I would think, most of us respect the police. Even when they pull us over and give us a ticket for being on our phones while driving to pick up a friend for dinner on Thursday night. I know that was oddly specific, but you'll have to ask me about that later if you want more information. Don't think of a police officer like you think of police officers in your town. Think of them more a centurion. Think of a centurion more like a Russian soldier occupying Mariupol. The, the locals would see them as unwelcome invaders. These are enemies. Once again, somebody comes to Jesus, and the person who comes to Jesus is not truly welcome in polite Jewish society. This time it's not an unclean leper, but it's a Gentile centurion, one of the enemies of the people of God. And the centurion comes to Jesus on behalf of his servant. The word translated there, servant, literally means young boy. So perhaps this is a, a young boy that was born into slavery in the centurion's household. And he doesn't ask Jesus to heal him, but that's the implication. He, he comes to Jesus, and he's, he's appealing to Jesus, my, my servant is sick. What's Jesus going to do? Jesus isn't going to help an enemy of God's people, is he? Surely Jesus wouldn't help somebody that belonged to a centurion. Look at verse 7. And Jesus said to the centurion, I will come and heal him. Again, I, I imagine gasps in the crowd when Jesus said that. Not only is he offering to heal a servant of the sworn enemy of the people of God, Jesus offers to go and actually go into his house. And that day, it would have been unthinkable for uh, any self-respecting Jew to enter the house of a Gentile. What happens next is even more shocking. Look at verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord... I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers unto me. And I, I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Look what happens next. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus, you could almost imagine, 
now is the one gasping. That's incredible faith. That's incredible faith he sees in the centurion. What is it about the centurion's faith that is so marvelous? A couple of things we could point out. First of all, the centurion knows he's not worthy. You see that? He says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Now, in Luke's gospel, Luke tells this story in uh, Luke chapter 7, and in verses 4 and 5, a group of religious leaders come to Jesus, and they appeal to Jesus to heal his servant. And they say, this man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. The Jewish leaders say, this, if anybody deserves healing, it's this man, Jesus. But the centurion doesn't think of it that way. The centurion knows, I'm not worthy. Christian, do we, do we know that? Do we know that about ourselves? Do we know that any good thing we receive is just added grace beyond what we deserve? There's a preacher who's somewhat known for responding when someone asks him, how are you doing? His automatic response is better than I deserve. Christian, if you believe the gospel, that's always true. Always. There is nothing that you deserve but eternal separation from God in hell, and yet you have received so much I'm not worthy, he says. That's incredible faith, especially for a centurion recognized in the Roman Empire, the strongest empire in the universe. And he says, I'm not worthy for you, humble Jewish teacher. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. That's incredible. There's more we could say about this man's faith. He believes that Jesus is able to heal without being physically present. D.A. Carson writes that we have no recorded evidence that up to this point, Jesus had performed a healing miracle at a distance and by word alone. So it's not like the centurion had heard stories of how Jesus healed people in different villages or from far away, but he believed that he could. He believed that Jesus was able to heal someone he had never seen before without even being near him. That's incredible faith. Why is it the centurion believed that Jesus could do that? Because of what he believed about Jesus' identity. A third reason that his faith is so marvelous is what he says about being under authority. He says, I'm under authority too. Now, whose authority would the centurion have been under? Of course, he's under the authority of the Roman emperor. And the centurion is actually a representative of the emperor's authority. So, when when the centurion says, go here and do this, it's as if the emperor himself is saying it. He's a representative of the emperor. He has the authority of the empire. And the centurion believes that Jesus has authority in the same way. Jesus is under the Father's authority, but he's also a representative of the Father. 
so that what Jesus says, God says. Where the Father has authority, Jesus has authority. Jesus doesn't have to be physically present to heal this servant because Jesus has authority there too. Why? Because he is a representative of God the Father. He is God himself in human flesh. When Jesus hears this faith from this man, he marvels. Nobody is too distant for Jesus to reach. That's the lesson that Jesus drives home in verses 11 and 12. Look in your Bibles at verse 11. Jesus says to those around him, I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Every self-respecting Jew in that day was looking forward to a messianic banquet. This, this day in heaven when they would sit at a table and there'd be all the food they could ever ask for or imagine it's given there and it's there for them to feast on and enjoy. But the best part about that feast for many Jews was that no Gentiles would be there. Jesus says, no. Jesus says, listen to me. People from east and west, people from as far as Pocosin, Virginia are going to be at that table. Meanwhile, some of those who think that they're fine because they're ethnically Jewish are going to be cut off forever in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you're a Gentile living in Jesus' day, you would likely feel very cut off from God, very distant. Even if you were familiar with the God of Israel, you knew you couldn't really be accepted by him. Even the temple was cut off into places where a Gentile could go and everyone else. You were reminded every day that you were distant from God, but Jesus says, you're not too distant for me. You're not too far away for me to reach you. So let me ask you, dear friend, this morning, where is your faith Where is your faith? If it's in Jesus, when you close your eyes in this life, you will open them in the presence of Jesus. You will one day be welcomed at his table in the heavenly kingdom. If your faith is in your good works, your church membership, your giving record, or anything else, you will be cut off in darkness forever. Maybe you say, well, I can't have faith like that centurion. I can't have faith that's so strong that Jesus would marvel. You don't need to. Jesus says in Matthew 17, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. It is not, dear Christian, the size of your faith that's important, but its object. Weak faith in Jesus is infinitely better than strong faith in anything else. So Christian, take your weak faith and grab on Jesus and don't let go. You are not too distant for him 
to reach. Maybe you're still struggling to believe. Let me just encourage you. When Jesus says something, you can take it to the bank. And that's what Matthew shows us in verse 13. To the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus says he's going to do something, he does it. You can trust him, Christian. I think it's important for us Christians not to misunderstand this beautiful truth that no one's too distant for Jesus to reach. Jesus' power to reach those far away doesn't mean that we don't have a job to do. About 250 years ago, there was a young English Baptist pastor, a guy named William Carey, who was burdened for those who are distant from God. Today, we would call them unreached people groups. These are people groups, groups of people, not that aren't saved, but have no access to the gospel. You have tons of friends that aren't saved, and yet they drive past churches all the time. They live near Christians. They work with Christians. They, they're friends with you, so you can reach them. An unreached people group is a group of people that has no Perhaps no churches in their people group. Perhaps no Bible in their language. They're not going to have access. They might live and die and never meet a Christian. And this guy, 250 years ago, William Carey, is burdened about these people. And he was in a, as the story goes, he was in a Baptist associational meeting trying to convince these fellow Baptist pastors to send missionaries to the heathen, as they called them, when a fellow pastor reportedly said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the, healing, the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Christian, it's true that God doesn't need to consult us before he reaches the unreached, but he's already told us in his word, how will they hear without a preacher? He intends to reach them through faithful messengers like you and me. So will we go, tell them? Will we send missionaries to them? None is too far for Jesus to reach. Final lesson this morning from our text. Nothing is too difficult for Jesus to carry. In Jesus' day, there was a popular prayer. This isn't a biblical prayer. And it certainly isn't a prayer that Jesus would have endorsed. But it was a popular prayer among many Jews nonetheless, and it went like this. Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Now, in the story so far, we've seen Jesus heal an outcast leper, a Gentile slave. Now, in verse 14, he shows mercy and compassion to a woman. Look at the text. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, in Jesus' day, people didn't have the luxury of lying in bed if they had a little bit of sniffles or a cold. So when it says she's lying in bed sick with a fever, it doesn't mean she's a little bit sick. She's probably on her deathbed. 
would be the only reason why she'd be laid up. If she's so sick, she's immobilized by her sickness. This is a serious, serious sickness. And again, Jewish tradition would, would forbid you from touching someone who had a fever. But Jesus goes right in there, sees Peter's mother-in-law, puts his hand on her, and immediately she gets up and says, Jesus, what do you want for dinner? She's healed instantly. It's incredible. This is the power of our Jesus. And eventually, word begins to spread all throughout Capernaum about this incredible Jesus. So look at verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. And we're going to see more of this in the weeks to come, but Jesus here is showing his authority over demons, over disease. He's healing anybody and everybody that comes to him. Look at how Matthew interprets what's happening in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, some tragically have taken verse 17 and concluded that it's God's will for you to be healthy as long as you have enough faith. So I'm going to do something I've never done in 15 years of preaching. I'm going to quote Joel Osteen. He says this, Maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family genes, but don't succumb to it. Instead, say every day, my mind is alert. I have clarity of thought. I have a good memory. Every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. If you'll rise up in your authority, you can be the one to, to put a stop to the negative things in your family line. Start boldly declaring, God is restoring health unto me. I am getting better every day in every way, end quote. That's the lie of what we call the prosperity gospel, that if you have enough faith, Jesus will heal you. And many of them look to Matthew 8, verse 17, and they say, see, he's carrying our illnesses. He's carrying our diseases. That's what he's promising to do. And maybe you're wondering, why isn't Jesus healing me? Why, why did the cancer come back? Why, why am I in chronic pain? Why can't I see or, or hear or smell or taste or whatever like I used to? Why isn't Jesus healing? It's not too difficult for him. He healed everybody in Capernaum. Why isn't he healing me? Because when Matthew talks about Jesus carrying our illnesses and diseases, he's pointing to something greater. There's a basic interpretation principle, when the New Testament quotes the old, it's not merely referring to this, the quotation, but to the passage. So let's go back to the passage in Isaiah that Matthew's referring to. This is Isaiah 53, uh, verses 3 to 6. It's going to be on the screen. Jesus, this is referring to the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Matthew 8.17 talks about Jesus carrying the sicknesses and the diseases of the people in Capernaum. But he's pointing us back to Isaiah 53 where we're told that Jesus would not only carry physical sickness, he would carry our sin. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross carrying something far heavier than your sickness, carrying something far heavier than your pain, carrying your sin. And there on the cross, he was punished as if he had done all the sinful things you and I have done. He was treated the way you should have been treated so that if you trust in him, you can be treated the way that the Father treats Jesus. You can be welcomed and adopted into the family of God. Do you see that nothing is too difficult for this Jesus to carry? He is the sin bearer. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would plead with you one more time before you leave this room today to trust in him. There'll be someone at the white flag waiting to talk to you after the service. If you'd like to talk to someone more about that, I'd be happy to do that with you. But don't leave here today until you trust in him. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, as most of us are, listen to me. The message of Christ is not about healing and wealth in this life. It's about the cross. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. So hear the words of J.C. Ryle, who said, Let others hold for the terrors of hell and the joys of heaven. Give me the cross of Christ. This is the only lever which has ever turned the world upside down and made people forsake their sins. And if this will not, nothing will. A man will do little or no good among his hearers unless he knows something of the cross. So lift high the cross, Christian. And wherever you are in your life today, hear the words of the song we're about to sing. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Jesus helps those who can't help themselves. Would you pray with me?